0: This is Philosophy, the intersection of meaning and money. We live in a world of an abundance of stuff, but a scarcity of meaning and purpose. On Philosophy, we explore how a philosophy of life can help us pursue meaningful endeavors and prepare for the future while enjoying today. Money is entangled in almost every aspect of modern life. So any serious inquiry for self-knowledge and personal development requires an exploration of the meaning of money. We'll learn from business leaders, entrepreneurs, philosophers, investors, historians, and others to help us think better, work better, invest better, build better, and live better. This show is brought to you by Vermillion Private Wealth. Thanks for being a part of this quest. Hello, this is Philosophy, and I'm your host, James Vermillion. Today, I'm joined by Michael Mick Patrick-Molroy. Mick is the former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for the Middle East. As the DASD, he was responsible for defense policy for 15 countries and represented the Department of Defense for policy in those areas. He's also a retired CIA paramilitary operations officer in the Special Activities Center and a United States Marine. He's a senior fellow for the Middle East Institute and ABC News National Security Analyst and a co-founder of the Lobo Institute. Mick is also a practicing Stoic. During our conversation, we discussed the role of ethics in organizations, how Stoicism helped Mick during combat deployments, the crisis of leadership, hyperconnectivity, and a lot more. Mick brings a unique perspective to this discussion about Stoic philosophy. You're sure to gain some insights from our discussion. Enjoy. Hello, Mick. Thanks for joining me today.
1: Great to be with you, James.
0: I've got a pretty long list here on the agenda, but I think it might be helpful to start really broad and kind of hone in a little bit as we go. And I've had a lot of conversations recently about philosophy, stoicism in particular, but, but philosophy as a whole. And a, a common question is asked of me when when these things come up. And it's usually something along the lines of, why is that relevant? Like, what's the point of of studying these ideas from you know two, three thousand years ago? So, I would like to get your thoughts. Why do you think ancient philosophy is relevant to modernity um, when so much, in certain ways, has changed uh, since these ideas were were first, at least, written or captured?
1: So, I think it's a couple of reasons. Um, the first one I'd say is we really haven't changed that much, <laughs> you know? I mean, I wasn't around back then, but um, it's surprising when not only you read philosophy, but you read the dramas of the time and the, and you know, the plays and you look at today and, you know, human nature hasn't changed all that much, either for the good or the bad, right? Um, so we are still, you know, um, very similar, I think. And I think, you know, sociologists and anthropologists would back me up on this. As we were when, say, Socrates was walking around the streets of Athens. Um, so that's one reason. The other reason is their thoughts and ideas just stand the test of time. So you can you can just look at the what I would say the surge in Stoicism right now. So the thoughts that, you know, from Zeno to Aurelius to, you know, just all the way up to modern times, people still are very interested in the concepts. It's not just... You know, I want to, you know, study history necessarily. But the last point I'd make is people like to be attached to their history. Right. And if, Mm -hmm. you know, somebody just wrote a brand new book with a bunch of brand new acronyms about, you know, how to, you know, how to go through life and and a new philosophy. I'm not saying people wouldn't be interested in it, Um, but there is something to the connection that you have throughout you know when it comes to western philosophy certainly and it's spread you know around the world but it is a tether to our common um, history you know it's it started when the birth of democracy started in many of the sciences and it is it is one of those things that at its core every person around the world i think is is interested in in some way or fashion
0: yeah i've been reading a lot of psychology books over the last I don't know, maybe year, year and a half. And uh, it's funny to me, even like modern, s- you know, breakthroughs <laughs> in right. psychological research, many of the ideas uh, are nothing new. It's maybe just a a study of some sort that maybe confirmed the idea, or it's just a rewording, if, if nothing else, of an idea that, that somebody else mentioned 2000 years ago. So I, I think you're right. A lot of these ideas are very uh, repetitive throughout history. And I definitely agree we have not changed all that much. I think it, we – we modern day, we sit on this pedestal of like we are all-knowing and we've figured all these things out, like what a leg up we have. But realistically, we're dealing with the same the same things. And that's why Marcus Aurelius, to me, was the first super appealing philosopher. And really the reason was he wasn't a philosopher as far as um, – in, in an academic sense. He was a philosopher in practicing uh, philosophy, yes. and I think that that jumped out to to me as this is a guy I think that's worth listening to because these problems, even though he was the emperor of the most powerful empire on earth, some of his problems are the same things I'm I'm going through, or the same issues I'm dealing with. So mm-hmm. I think that's pretty powerful that those these issues are relevant not only across a period of time, but across many other demographics, whether it's age, uh, wealth anything else. Uh, most people are dealing with the same, same or similar challenges.
1: Absolutely. And it helps to see how people have dealt with it in the past.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's kind of the original self-help if you will. Yeah. Um, you know, people find philosophy for different reasons and at different times, what kind of brought you, what, what, uh, was your initial curiosity surrounding, surrounding philosophy and what kind of led you to, to explore that a little bit more?
1: So the best I can explain it was my dad was, a, uh, was actually a Jesuit priest, okay? And he was, as all Jesuits are, trained in the classics. Uh, then he left the priesthood, obviously, or I wouldn't be here, um, <laughs> and became a scientist. And he, although he wasn't anti-religion at all, um, he kind of taught me ethics through classical Greek mostly philosophy, uh, particularly Plato's Republic, and all of the allegories that are in that. And then I was drawn toward, although I would say he was definitely a Stoic, but he was more of, you know, a general philosopher. But I kind of gravitated toward the Stoic philosophy, and I think he, he encouraged that. Right, so it's in some ways, you know, I grew up in you know, my friend was a Presbyterian and the and I'm I'm Irish Catholic, my background, but you know, um, I was the Stoic. You know, I I actually said that once when I was when I was a kid, and you know, I got some really odd looks, you know, in (laughs) rural rural Georgia as a you're a what? You know, I'm not familiar with that church, son. Uh, (laughs) But so so in, in in ways, I've always been. I'm not, I'm I'm an amateur, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a, a professor on a PhD in philosophy, but in a ways I've always been a, a stoic, you know, and, a, and, and, and very interested in philosophy. So not just that one part of it, but all of it. And then throughout my career, it just kept coming back up. You know, um, you know, when I was enlisted in the Marine Corps, one of the required readings was meditations. My old boss, you know, former uh, General Jim Mattis and then uh, Secretary Mattis carried the meditations and mm. the Stoic kind of principles of you know courage and justice and wisdom and self discipline um, are definitely like the ethos of the Marine Corps and a lot of military units. So I, it was that, and then I when I in the agency, I I kind of leaned on it. The agency being the CIA, I kind of leaned on it, uh, in many of the you know worst you know events of my life, which you know I spent most of my uh, life in conflict zones, um, and it was very helpful, all of it, and and then you know when I was at the Pentagon, you know obviously worked for somebody most people would would point as a modern day stoic, you know uh, Secretary Mattis. And it's just always been a part of it. And when I got out, I just happened to become very um, good friends with a lot of the, I wouldn't say the modic, modern stoic leaders, if you will, mm-hmm. uh, including Donald Robertson. And then I got involved in their organization. And now I kind of feel like I've come all the way full circle. And I, you know, my, my hobby, if you will, is stoicism. I am mean, have, have the privilege to go uh, speak in Athens and I am part of the Plato's Academy center and I'm about to be part of the Aurelius foundation. And it's just, uh, it's just been a lifelong pursuit.
0: I lo- Donald is lovely by the way. He's, he's he fantastic. Yeah. I recently spoke with Donald and, and Massimo and, yeah. um, so it's, it's cool. You know, one of the things I've enjoyed is just how accessible, like modern thought leaders and stoicism are it's not like some areas where it's like they're they're untouchable and like you'll never reach them other than reading their books. um they've been very easy to communicate with and they're very open and 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 just willing to to you know have dialogue uh which is important uh yeah. when we're talking about philosophy. so I think that's one really cool piece about it. I want to go back to one thing you mentioned I've got a young daughter, so this is particularly interesting to me. How did, uh, when you were younger, how did your dad introduce those ideas? Was it through storytelling? Um, was it, I'm just curious, these are things I want to make sure that I, you know, as my daughter gets older that I, you know, introduce to her and, and, you know, take the opportunities as they arise to like implement those lessons into our discussion. So I'm curious how your father did that.
1: So that is exactly how he did it. He focused on the storytelling aspect of the Republic, you know, whether it's the allegory of the cave, whether it's the Gyges ring, you know, it's, it is a, it's, you know, the way many religious, uh, groups teach ethics. You tell yeah. a story, um, in a form that a kid would digest. Uh, I, I certainly knew he was talking about, you know, for example, Plato's Republic. So I had a concept of, you know the shadows on the wall I mean I knew it, but it, my dad did it in a form of a story that a a child would listen to right and at the end you you come out with um a moral point you know right and you know in the Socratic method of doing that that me or or your daughter comes up with that herself, right It's not just a dictation type uh scenario where you just tell her, hey this is a story, this is what you think. So, you know, in the, in the pure Socratic way of doing it, it's this is a story. What do you think? Um, and then you in, in a, you know, a, a nurturing way, get them to express themselves so that they essentially remember the the, the old lesson. And that's how I did it. Uh, you know, there was some just historical, you know, telling me about, uh, for example, Socrates, uh, which I've always been fascinated with, because when I first heard about him, it was all, you know, Socrates philosopher. But then once I was in the military and, and, you know, me and Donald wrote a paper on this, uh, Socrates was a war hero. I mean, he wasn't just, you right. know just served you know, for a, a little while. He was, you know, awarded and turned down what we would call the Medal of Honor twice, you know? So it's just a reluctant <laughs> hero. For it, it, sure. Yeah. Reluctant. Yeah. He just, um, you know, the kind of best kind of hero, to be frank. Exactly. So, yeah. yeah so I've always, I've always been fascinated by, him in particular and then you know all of the philosophies that's that came from his uh, teachings but particularly stoic'ism so th- to answer your question I would try to make it as fun as possible I know that like Donald's done some things for kids on uh, Marcus Aurelius I hope there's mm-hmm. more of that I hope there's more getting back to you know where where our grandfathers went to school when they learned philosophy like they really did nobody came out of there not knowing one you know, who any of the giants of philosophy were. Uh, and I hope we get back to that and the teaching of ethics. You know, I, I think that, and I think, you know, statistics bear me out in public opinions. We're getting a little, little far astray from truth and, you know, integrity and, and those type of things. And I think one of the best ways I could say we could fix that is is going back to teaching it in, in schools.
0: I mean that's a great lead in to another question I wanted to ask you. Um and I would agree with you. Uh I think part of it is probably linked to this hyper focus on specialization, which I think we could, you know, talk forever about. But I think largely that's, you know, due to kind of the economic system that we have and trying to to you know push kids in directions early to specialize in something so they can make a living and, and so on and so forth. Um, and as a financial advisor, like all that stuff is, is important for me to think about. But I think we've made a, a grave error in largely omitting ethics training and things like that for school children and even after school and professional training. Um, and you've obviously spent time in positions where leadership, teamwork, um, and, and, you know, understanding kind of the human condition is really important, not to some bottom line or, uh, or something like that, but to keeping people alive and, and accomplishing a, an important mission. Do you think at that level, whether you're in the military or academia, um, is, is there a lack of, of thought leadership in ethics, and what do we do to fix it? I mean, obviously, the answer is to, to teach it, but how do we how do we make that transition from basically it's non-existent to starting to implement it in some meaningful way?
1: Well, I think you kind of nailed it there when you talked about how we're so now focused on teaching skills that uh, would assist a young man or woman in their career and, and making a living, which is nothing wrong with that. But I don't think we should. I think, especially ethics, that crosses every spectrum of human society, whether you're a teacher, a business person, a politician, you know, all down the line. Um, so I don't think the two should ever be unpaired. Like when you go to business school and I haven't, but, or law school, which I have, it should never be disconnected. There should be an element of ethics in all of that. One, because it's the right thing to do. But two, that's what keeps society together. Right. If everybody was just in it for themselves, without any connection to doing the right thing, when people are looking or when people aren't looking, yeah. then we start having serious problems. I think we see that. I don't think it's um, you know everybody says it's a crisis in their generation, but I think this at least the perception from people today is that we have gone, especially on the political realm, but also in many realms, business and, and academics. Um, away from what I would say is a more true course, which is, for example, strong ethical foundations, um, teaching critical thinking, uh, for example, and Mm -hmm. service, right? So, and, you know, we're, we're having an upcoming thing, um, on how stoicism can influence our political arena and policymaking arena. And I think that's one of the areas where people are most concerned about, you know, because a a political leader um, is now uh, one of the least respected professions out there. Yet they, in many ways, have more impact than any other profession on the rest of us. So um, I think there's a lot that we could do to try to improve all of the uh, sectors of human society with philosophy, with ethics. In that in that kind of way of view of the world uh, as something much larger than self.
0: Yeah, I, I agree wholeheartedly, and and also I would add, you know, we talked about the specialization piece, and I think that's a major part of it. But but I also think to to some extent, philosophy itself, just the concept of how to live, has been hijacked a little bit over time. It's gone. When most people think of philosophy now, they think of a liberal arts major that is about these abstract questions of life right. um, this right. kind of esoteric right. you know let's sit around in a circle and think about why we're here and and yeah certainly those are uh, that's important uh, on some level uh, but ultimately my my belief is that philosophy is about how to live. And, and those things need to be able to be applied. It's not just about discussions for the sake of discussions. It's about how to build a better society, how to build a better life as an individual and and influence others in that way. So I think, I think to some extent, even when you say I'm interested in philosophy, I think I get strange looks sometimes, maybe it's a little unexpected. I don't know. Um, But I think that's why I think people think that means I sit around and read, you know, strange books from the 1970s and and contemplate uh you know i don't know i don't know i don't know what people think but it's not what i have in mind i guess when i say philosophy
1: right and i that's that's a good point so if philosophy itself has become so segregated and isolated then it really doesn't do a lot of people any good right so if it's just uh phds at oxford sitting around talking about ancient philosophical script not there's anything wrong with that uh but i don't think that's what philosophy's main purpose in existence is it is for everybody right so if they're not if they're not like teachers and sages of it then essentially um it doesn't have the impact that i think that i think it should which is that you know you should be able to be a philosopher an amateur one um and be a businessman and be uh or a woman and in any uh part of uh human society because that's I think, what the core of being human is. So it should just be some obscure thing. Like you said, it should be something that people feel connected to. And um, hopefully, for some, I mean, for some religions is is their, uh, you know, pillar of their being. Uh, mm-hmm. For others that particularly may not be as interested in in that route, philosophy can be. It doesn't replace it. It isn't, it isn't a religion in and of itself. But it's certainly... I think gives people the ability to be introspective, and 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 determine what they are doing right and wrong, and try to change what they're doing wrong, um, and and in a way that's very helpful to the rest of everybody. So it's not just inward looking, but it's inward looking for uh, a broader good.
0: Yeah, it's well said. Um, I want to talk about your experiences. You've done some really interesting stuff, just from from what I know about your background. Um, in the military and um, in the CIA, were there ever times where you felt the mission or what you were trying to achieve or the actions you had to take were at odds with your philosophy or ethical beliefs? And if so, how did you how did you cope with that? What did you do?
1: the The one story, if you remember from the Republic that always came back to me when I was in the CIA um was the the ring of gyges which if you recall they found a ancient warrior giant man person with a ring and when a person put it on and and um, rotated it you'd become invisible and then the whole point was you know what would you do or not do if you had that capability i think at least i've been told that's where they you know token got the the idea of the ring mm. Uh, If I'm wrong, I'm sure somebody will write that on the bottom. (laughs) (laughs) But I was told that Um, makes sense. (laughs) Uh, But to me, it really resembled the CIA, right? So the CIA, um, Central Intelligence Agency, has certain authorities that no other organization does. It's uh, it has that covert authority uh, that's granted by the president, and um, although it definitely has oversight, you know the Senate. In the House have intelligence committees that have oversight. We have to uh, respond and um, essentially explain ourselves to elected mm-hmm. members of uh, both parties. And the president has to tell us what to do. Sometimes the CIA gets that, like, like it was our idea kind of thing, where the military, and I'm, I'm obviously, I'm obviously a military guy too, or the military to start with, and I ended up in the military. The military doesn't get generally get blamed for, things the president tells it to do, right? Um, the agency always does, as if they're just, we just sat around and came up with these things ourselves. So I always viewed, <laughs> you know, that as is um, as, as very connected because we didn't have the public um, view that a lot of other organizations does, but we had to be responsible with that. So there are certainly controversial things that happened when I was there, including entire wars, uh, like the Iraq war. Um, but also, you know, and I don't want to go into details, but like, you know, renditions and, you know, the, the enhanced interrogations as they call it. I think a a lot of, a lot of people had issues with what we were asked to do. Um, but because it was legal and because of the circumstances surrounding it, people, people did. You know, and I think in yeah. hindsight, uh, some of those things, some of them are overblown or just misstated. But as a whole, I think I think that there was a lot of lessons to learn there. For me specifically, it was more. You know, if I ever had a, I wouldn't say dilemma. It was it was a war in Iraq for two reasons. One, I got embedded early on with the Kurdish in the Kurdish region, okay. uh, which is the northern part of Iraq. Uh, with a whole team, but uh, you know, I was nothing special. I was just a junior paramilitary officer. Um, their plight was extremely um, um, important to me. I felt like they were genuinely not only good people, and there's good people everywhere, but they really aligned with a lot of the, the human rights that the United States viewed. You know, the rights of women and free free association and religion, freedom of religion, and so on. And so I kind of I kind of got to, you know, they're good at this, but they kind of did a lot of Americans like this. But I definitely got to the point where I felt we should do everything we can to ensure that they never go through what they did under Saddam when they were uh, gassed and really tried to. It was genocide uh, on a a small scale up there, Uh, but genocide, genocide. Right. But then I also thought that the war itself was not well thought out. Put it that way. But you know what? At the end of the day, I was, a, I was a junior PM officer and nobody was asking me. So, you know, the only <laughs> way the only way that works is if, you know, you sign up, you sign up to serve. If you're in a position to make a decision, you make a decision. If you're not, you know, if everybody went their own way every time they had a diff- disagreement, um, our whole national security system would not work. You know, right. I, you know. so um, it, it was never a crisis like I thought I should not be there. But you know, it is something that um, has stayed with me. And the last, and the other that's probably the most pressing, and I think a lot of the veterans would have the same is how we left Afghanistan. You know, if there was a a really ethical crisis, I would say that was it. Um, even if you decide you thought we should leave, and I was one that thought we should leave a small presence that could maintain what we've worked so hard for for 20 years and not abandon those, which was significant when it came to economic development there, the reduction of terrorist threats, and the rights of women in particular, but just human rights in general. So I thought we should have preserved that. But even if you didn't, and I know people on both sides of that, the way we left, and left people that we had made um, solemn promises to was an ethical dilemma. I think that's why you saw so many veterans come out of the woodwork to throw down their own credit card to do whatever they could to help get those partners that fought alongside us for twenty years and that we promised we wouldn't leave, do what we did. I think that was probably the biggest dilemma that I've seen. And the way I and you know quite frankly most veterans I know dealt with is just become to vol- just volunteer, just to help whoever you can. And, uh, Mm. yeah, I think those are the two that I would say are most significant for me.
0: Yeah. On the latter, I mean, I was, I was in the air force myself and, uh, didn't serve any time in Afghanistan or Iraq, but, um, many of my friends that I'm still in contact with, some of whom are clients now and all that good stuff. That was a major, uh, point as, as far as the Afghanistan withdrawal and several, several of them we've had pretty deep, um, philosophical discussions really about, you know, coming to terms with, with that. And many of them were, were on the ground and deeply embedded and had had friends made very close ties with, with locals over there. And, um, you know, did not have a, a good feeling about the, the way that, that ended. So I certainly understand, you know, where you're coming from there. And that was a very difficult moment for a lot of people who spent a lot of tough times, um, on on that mission. So, so that's pretty interesting. And I asked that question just because to me, that that's where the ideas really start to have an impact. It's like, if you've, if you've got these ideas, but then anytime something difficult happens, you just abandon them. Like what good are the ideas? They're just ideas at that point. So I always think it's interesting to think about difficult moments and challenges and, and how did the philosophy help you? What, what role did it play in making those difficult decisions or coping with the aftermath of whatever the result was. So I think that's, that's something interesting. I've heard you talk about one of the more famous modern examples. Um, and that's uh, Stockdale and, and his um, experience of being captured and tortured. And, and I think he's got probably one of the most famous lines as far as modern Stoics go when he said, when he basically was going into captivity, probably had some inkling of an idea of what he was going to deal with. Um, Maybe not to the full extent, but he knew it wasn't going to be pretty. And he knew it was going to be challenging into the depths of his core. um, When he said, I'm entering the world of Epictetus. And to me, like that's, hopefully I'll never go through anything that difficult, but I I think that's a really great mental framework for, for viewing, you know, things that aren't so bad. It's still a, a cool way to say, Hey, you know, I can do this. I can make it through this. I've got the tools. Um, that have been passed down through generations, you know, of, of wise people, I can deal with whatever this minimal challenge that I'm facing today is.
1: Yeah. It does really put things in perspective. Like, right? I mean, you fathom what uh, Admiral Stockdale went through um, and he still maintained um, his honor, right? Very much so. In fact, is now an example, but you, but to have examples before you, you know, Epictetus being, a slave right um mm-hmm. that is something that i think people do and and he wasn't the only one that relied on that i was i've also read that nelson mandela did um yep. you know when he was incarcerated uh obviously wrongly uh in south africa but that i mean if if something were to happen and i would have been i could i could have been in positions where i guess i would have been uh i don't know how long i would have lasted uh because they <laughs> you know they probably wouldn't spend a lot of time um beating a CIA officer, they might just, uh, you know, off me. But um, if I had the opportunity to last longer, I would, I would, I'm I'm sure I would think about all the people that have gone before me and had it potentially much worse. Um, I think that does give you strength. It is, I think it is good to have heroes, period. If you don't, it may indicate you're a bit too self-absorbed, right? You should have heroes in your life um, and you should look for them. And then you should, you should, the ones that you think really, um, ex- uh, exemplify what you think is important. You should point them out to other people, especially young people and your children and other people's children. I think that's another thing we should go. There's a lot of examples of what we all would point to and say, be like that uh, woman or man. Um, I think that's, that's another thing that we should probably do more of.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think, Presenting the the heroes that will actually um, present the right ideas is really important, yeah. um, especially young people when they're left to pick heroes totally on their own. Oftentimes, you know, resort to to those who are very short sighted. Um, it's more about it becomes about instant gratification instead of living a life well lived. And when you get into some of those challenges, some very bad and long term damaging decisions can be made. So I think you're absolutely right. We've got to be very thoughtful about who we encourage people to look up to, whether it's, you know, people who are alive and kicking today or, or people from antiquity or somewhere in between. Yeah. I think that's a great point.
1: Yeah. In fact, we, uh, on that point, my wife and I were watching a TV series the other day and, you know, used to say things like profanity, nudity or whatever, just like a warning. This, mm-hmm. this one we watched said no role mark. I was pretty, I was pretty <laughs> taken back by that. I was like, huh, I've never seen that. Like, that, now that's a warning, you know, for people to get right. in. I mean, it wasn't a bad series, to be frank, but there was nobody there that you would point to in a series where you'd say, be like, no, don't be like, nope, nope, don't be like. I mean, it, it, and that's important now. I mean, if you don't, know to your point, if kids are picking their own, own role models and it's who gets the most, you know, views or what have you on social media, it probably is not the right person that you want them to emulate. I'm not saying they're all bad totally. social media but I mean, think about it. So you know, it's it's based on looks or what they say or whether they're you know uh, outrageous enough to get a lot of people. That's not. I don't. I think think anybody would say that's what we want our kids to emulate. So uh, maybe we should have more shows that uh, you know, plenty of role models or at least one, you know, to, right. to, to kind of like right. set the standard there. Yeah.
0: That's funny. Uh, You know, I think that's a good transition, actually. Uh, I I saw an interview that you did with ABC News and a little piece jumped out at me here. So I'm going to go ahead and read that. And and I want to get you to expand your thoughts a little bit on on a piece of it. You said morals and ethics are the core of any society. They constitute a nation's culture. They affect how we behave as neighbors or as allies in grammar school, school or law school on Wall Street or Main Street in peace or in war. Instant connectivity and complexity arguably make moral beliefs and ethical practices more relevant than they were in the pre-internet era, and I want to focus on the second half of that because I think that ties into basically what you were just talking about there with with social media. Um, what did you mean, kind of, by that high, you know, instant connectivity and complexity piece?
1: And, and I'm a, a national security analyst for ABC, so normally I write on. Or talk about just national security issues, but they uh, they had one good editor that really like was a stoic, actually, which is how I got some of the stoic stuff in there. Um, but specifically, when it comes to what I've seen in my life, is people are not willing to hear the other side of the story as much when there is a separation, whether it's through emails or social media, like you just. I mean, there's this one, I've seen the video clip many times, but I think it sums it up. It's two dogs that are going like crazy and barking at each other. I don't know if you've seen this. And there's a fence and it's an electric, it's an automatic fence. And then somebody clicks a button and the fence opens and they just stop. They literally act like, <laughs> right? <laughs> They're not barking at nothing. They're not like, whoa, whoa, whoa. We're just, we're just barking here. Right. And then as soon as the fence shuts again, they go back to barking. Right. That's so, a good
0: metaphor. I like it. Right.
1: Yeah, it really to me was like, wow, you know, so it is, and I think it has created this schism um, in almost all facets of society, right? Especially politics, which is now like totally consumed um, so much of the country where it's, it just becomes more of a, almost like a sports team. Like your team can do no wrong and their team can do no right. And meeting in the middle is just not acceptable, and it becomes less about the bigger picture, which is all of us, uh, society, and more about you know, even when you're not even in the po- a political position, you're still all solved by your party. But I'm not a, I'm, I'm an independent, as you might guess, on my comments. Uh, not a partisan, and uh, you know, people are fully free to be partisan. But the problem I think with the internet now is. There is no real discussion. There's no debate in the sense that, um, you know, one of the one of the pillars I think, get back to a little bit to stoicism here, is wisdom. Wisdom isn't just knowing stuff. I mean, a lot of people could just know stuff. Wisdom is critical thinking. And yeah. one of the key elements of it is the ability to change your mind. If you don't have the ability to take on new information and change your previous position, in my book, you don't have wisdom. You ju- I mean, it's just... Critical thinking is inclusive of, I thought this, you explained your side, I saw the logic in your side, and now I've changed my position. If you can't do that, then, and I think that just, at least in my experience, um, just doesn't happen through social media. It's all about, well, you know, one-upping. So specifically, you know, part of what I was saying there is we need to get back to um, pushing you know, what we already talked about, you know, ethics, virtue ethics in school. Not just as a topic like you learn every other thing, but as something that should be at the core of your being. Uh and that that's what I and I I think it, it's become really now are remote, right? So I don't know how many people you're probably the same way that I now know and are friends with and I've never actually met because of COVID. Right. You know, but right. I and if you said well you said you're good friends with that guy. You never met them? Like, well, no, but I've done, you know, I've talked to people online and I, you know, you know, I'm, I, I, there's a lot of people like that, right? So uh-huh. it's tough. We have to take the time to get to know people. You have to take, be, have the wisdom to, to actually think about each topic uh, or whatever issue you're talking about in a critical way, including critical of your own initial beliefs. So I think, I think if we start doing a lot more of that, we'd probably solve a lot more problems
0: yeah I've got two two brief thoughts on kind of the the whole social media connectivity and i'm a I'm a tech guy like i think I think technology can be a tool to solve many problems um but I think we we have to prevent it um intently, not just passively um from becoming like we solved one problem and created two um and one of the problems that I've seen um over over the years is it just feels like attention spans are shortening and people are looking for a summary. They're looking for a graphic they're looking for. And those are great. I mean, you know, it's, it's really powerful when you can get across an important message in a sentence. Um, but the problem with that is there's no room for nuance when you've got one sentence or one picture to tell a story. Um, so people, I I like writing long, long form essays. And I know, as I'm writing it, most people aren't going to read this because they're not yeah, going to sit down yeah, for, yeah. for ten minutes and and read a, a blog post or an article or an essay. They're just not. They want to read a, a two sentences and get really angry <laughs> or upset right, right, or, or right. energized about something. So I think the attention span piece is one of it. And then I also was, you know, you reminded me of a conversation I had with my wife not too long ago, and we were kind of commenting on political signs that are in yards and not just during election season. Um, They're more like, I stand for this particular topic or this side of this issue. And then the same thing on social media where people feel some need to declare every position that they have. And I think that can be a bit dangerous because I know people that I've known for years and are dear friends to me, but they have very different views. If I didn't know them, and I saw their thing on social media, I might say, that guy's an idiot liberal or that guy's an intolerant conservative without, without having the opportunity to actually realize, I love so many things about this person. And so I think we're automatically shutting doors to relationships based on very little information and information that frankly, in most cases, isn't that pertinent as to whether or not we're going to enjoy their company, or learn something from them, or be able to have interesting conversations. So I think those two things can be create really large challenges um, in the connectedness kind of of a society because we're, like you said, we're automatically, immediately trying to determine quickly is that person on my team or not, um, and and I think that's a bad bad way to go about life and forming relationships
1: yeah so two points on that the first one i mean i agree technology can can enhance your life if you use it right um, but it can also become too much of your life right mm-hmm. for, for, for example right these things and yeah. um and i have one and i look at it in fact one day one day so i used to i i, I made the mistake of living right next to the pentagon when i worked there and i told everybody so I was always the one that got called in, <laughs> <laughs> right? I didn't have a car. So I just. That is a I, mistake. Uh, yeah, it is. You know, it's like, well, Mick keeps telling everybody, he's running to pentagon so just make him go right? On Sunday at mm-hmm. you know 9.30 at night. But I used to, you know, so I walked. And one day, I forgot my phone. And at first, I, it, I was literally walking there, and I was looking at all the other people who were walking down the street like this and being really judgmental. like really, Like, what the you know, like people almost walking into you and like having to grab them before they walk on the street, and I'm, you know, and I finally got to the pen and I'm like, why am I just noting this now? It's like, oh, because I forgot my phone. Because <laughs> normally, I exactly, seen them, you know, so, you were one of them. Yeah, yeah, I was one of them. Right, so I, I, it, it dawned on me then. I mean, you can't just be the parent all the time telling people what to do, but not doing do it. it. You know, it, and not I'm not saying you can't look at your phone, but you, you probably should. You know, consciously, it, at least in my case, you have to just do it and make yourself do it. Like, put it down. Just leave it in the other room. Talk to people. Don't, like, yeah. sit, you know, with your spouse or, which happens all the time you see in restaurants, unless you're oh, yeah. looking at your phone. Um, sit with your spouse and sit there and text some random person online about your political thoughts. I mean, you have to you have to balance it, I guess, is my point on that. And you have to be honest with yourself, right, about whether you're balancing it or not. Um, that that was the first. What was the second point you made? Like, uh, oh, about the become, political signs and yes. the identity, so, I guess. Yes. This is something because we prepped for this uh, or prepped it for this uh, seminar we're having on socialism and politics. Uh, I looked at this study that ABC did actually a long time ago. Um, people used to live where they lived for many reasons. There's been a trend. For people to politically migrate, like literally move to places because they're aligned with them. You know, it's America, you have the right to live anywhere. But where, what has happened because of that is that districts that used to be 48, 52 are now like 95, five, one way or the other. And so there isn't a lot of middle ground. It tends to push, not, it tends to push our politics to the extremes. Where yeah. you have to be, whether whether you're on, you know, wh- whatever side of the aisle you're on, you almost have to be on the furthest side of the aisle to be to to get nominated. And then it's almost like yeah. the primaries have become like the whole thing. And I think that's an awesome, that's also a problem. Where and it's not just the politicians, but people tend to only want to talk to people who already think like them. So they just get right. reinforced and reinforced and draw and uh, I say drug further to one side or the other. Um, because it's just more comfortable because you get, you know, actually mad at people who disagree with you. You know, maybe that's another part of teaching philosophy is the ability to actually have a discussion, have somebody disagree with you, but not be disagreeable about it. Right. And, and take on new information and, you know, potentially change your mind. So I think that is a, that is something that we need to look at doing more of
0: no i I agree and and you know Donald Robertson, I think speaks a lot about anger I, I, and I forget exactly how he puts it, but he basically says that if you want to fix yourself, start by learning to control your anger and being less yes. angry. And I think he's absolutely right. I th- you know, I see people and it feels like I know I know in practice this probably isn't the case, but it's like they want to be angry. It's like they're actively looking for something to to be angry about. And I think there's a a major sense of paranoia um, at the moment where the the other side, whoever they may be, is not only are they, do they have different thoughts from me, but they're actually trying to sabotage the country or my life or whatever. So I just, I think you're right. I think that pendulum starts to swing wider and wider. And I think it also happens from an inner party uh, stance, meaning, when one party moves to the extreme, the other party or other side of whatever specific topic feels like, well, we have to counter that. So we need to go more extreme. And then it's just this back and forth and it's a race to the, ext- to the, to the polls. And, um, again, I just don't, don't think that's a healthy way to be. But I was reminded you were talking about your phone. Did you see the picture from when LeBron? Broke the NBA scoring record and it was a shot from behind him. So he's shooting and you're looking at his back and mm-hmm. all the people opposite, um, you know, out of bounds, all the fans, right? everybody was snapping a picture except right. one dude, <laughs> one dude sitting on the court, just like sitting back smiling. Yeah. And I was like, oh, I don't want moment. to be that yeah. guy. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, right? Exactly. Every and picture. the best part is yep. now he's got a great portrait of himself. <laughs> so know, right? He's got the best picture of everybody.
1: That's a great example, right? Because, you know, I mean, think about like, if you really wanted a picture of Le- Le- LeBron James winning, I mean, breaking the record, there's a thousand of them. There's a million <laughs> right? of them, right? It's just like, why does yours, but you could just live the moment. Just put it down, put it in your pocket. Yeah. You see it. I mean, and that's a great example because everybody is familiar. Or most people are familiar with it, but you see it all the whole time. He goes, you will whale watching yeah. the whole time. You see people there they're like this.
0: Yes. Yeah. yeah.
1: Just look. just be next to the whale. Just be in the moment. I mean, if you really want to <laughs> go right. back and look at, you know, at a whale breaching, you can Google it. I mean, that, that's a good thing for technology, but you don't, you know, for yeah, sure. it's, you know, and, but people have to actually have discussions. That's why these kinds of discussions are important. Like, yeah, some people would say, you know, I do do that. I absolutely do do that. And I'm going to – I should I should just, you know, watch my grandkids play and take 500 pictures of them, you know, yeah. or something like that. Th- those are examples.
0: Well, and, and, and I'll be the first to admit, I have actively been working on – and by working on, I mean for the last two years of putting my phone down more. Yeah. Because I was becoming that person who had to an- answer a text – within 10 seconds of seeing my phone light up or um, you know, if I wanted to look something up, reaching for it immediately instead of doing it at a time when it made more sense. So I've been working on that myself. And I think probably the thing that's helped me the most is getting into reading more like a physical book, sitting down and reading. I agree. Because once my mind's a little bit more engaged in something that I feel is important, I'm less likely to just be looking for you know some stimuli right. to to get my attention and and meditation as well, just learning to be comfortable, not doing anything and i'm That's I'm tough. kind of an energetic person so yeah uh, that didn't come easy uh, for me and I'm still not great at it but several years into it um i I do think I've gotten a lot better of just being able to to sit and not necessarily need feel some urge or d- desire to occupy myself with with every second but it's it's hard i mean we're, we're trained that way now
1: yeah absolutely and it's almost like the, the you know the algorithms of these platforms actually enhance that you know that you definitely. know definitely they, they focus on the two main emotions love and hate, right and it's the it's the two things that gets people to react right mm-hmm. um yeah and i don't know if that's necessarily a good thing but uh, you know what one of the things i've uh, it's really helped me as a as a stoic and you don't you can be a good person and be in a lot of different philosophies but i really don't like hypocrites <laughs> okay <laughs> so like when i come on shows podcasts like yours and talk about the importance of this if i leave here and go skiing or whatever i'm doing for the day it, it if i don't do the right thing it really bothers me because you can't you know, like just talk about – it's like Aurelius's quotes, you know, just, you know, don't just talk about being a good man, be one. Be one, um, yeah. Be one, right? I mean philosophers do love talking about what it is to be a good person. That quote's but, on my wall, by uh, the way. Uh, yeah. But to me, it always meant like, yeah, don't be a hypocrite, man. Don't be mm-hmm. the guy who thinks he's, you know, all that and then – or gal. And then when you have an opportunity, when nobody's around, mm-hmm. you don't do it. Because then you should really be self-critical, like, I'm just a pro So that one thing that I think people, it, whether you're, you know, like super good person or maybe not the greatest person, if you're studying, you know, whether stoicism or any other philosophy that's really morally and ethically based, you are going to benefit from it as long as you try. Like you're always trying to hit the ideals that you espouse, Right more so than somebody who just gives up and says, you know, I'm going to, I'm in it for myself. And, you know, I'm not really going to focus on those things.
0: Yeah. And not to be the dead horse on the, uh, on the technology piece, but you know, you brought up an interesting point about algorithms. I saw Donald posted a poll one time about our uh, algorithms, the new sophistry, like a digital sophistry. Oh, yeah, and that's a good point. I think that's a, I think it's a great question. And, It's something I have to work on with myself and my clients, especially in finance and personal finance. Ninety five percent of what's out there is designed to scare somebody. Right. right. I. I mean, and it's really not that different than the news in other areas. Um, But you know, I really try to get my clients to understand these news stories you're seeing; these all of this fear mongering. It's not to help you. I promise. It's, it's to, it's to get clicks and to, to help them, you know, make more money. And, you know, those algorithms are dangerous because they're designed to push content that gets engagement, not content, content that is factually true. um, That is helpful uh, that does something positive for an individual or society at large. So I think people just have to be mindful, like what, who's incentivized here and what is that incentive for? What is somebody getting out of out of this action? And I think it's really, really important um, to think about. And I, and I love what you said too about being hypocritical. And it's one of the reasons I started writing. I felt like if I'm putting myself out there publicly for my friends and family and strangers to read, I feel like that almost is an added layer of a check, an additional check on myself. You know, mm-hmm. as I'm sitting there writing something, if I know it's bullshit,
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know I'm going to feel guilty ab- ab- yes. about that. So it's it's kind of a way to think out loud and have a conversation with yourself and and check in on yourself and saying, yeah, you know, are you just writing this to feel good or to get a pat on the back or for somebody else to say, oh yeah, me too? Or, are you writing this because you believe it and you try to live that way? So I would encourage anyone, whether it's the phone issue or 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 philosophy in general. Try writing if you're having trouble sticking with a a habit or or changing some something about yourself. Try writing about it because writing can be a powerful uh, enhancer to thinking. But totally agree. Totally agree. Little soapbox there. Mm-hmm. Uh, before we get into the closing questions, I did want to talk uh, about one other thing. This goes back to your experience in you know different organizations where leadership is paramount. You know, I generally think about philosophy on a more indiv- individual level, as far as you know, it's for a tool for me to be a better person and to to learn and grow and to do the right thing. How can a like because there are different philosophies and people believe different things on an organizational level? And you can use the military or or whatever if, as an example if you want. How as a leader can someone kind of instill certain principles um, and, and and ethics? into that without maybe being divisive or pushing people to one, one idea. And obviously there's a lot of overlap, but how would you go about kind of creating that culture without, you know, maybe leaving somebody
1: outside of it or something like that? So I learned, you know, leadership from the Marine Corps and you can learn it from a lot of different places, but that was my experience both as a enlisted Marine and as an officer. The best examples of leaders that I can think of exemplified rather than necessarily said mm-hmm. what a leader would be because um, it's easy to talk about, you know, what you think you are, but it, it goes to the quote we just talked about that's on your wall, right? Yeah. Um, and in the, in the Marine Corps, and this goes back to the Spartans, actually, but this, the idea of servant leadership. And, you know, there's a, I think there's even a book titled this is is leaders eat last. And that's a, that's a thing in the Marine Corps that they take from the servant leadership. And what it means, it's, it's probably metaphoric, but it's actually practical is you're only a leader because people are following you, Mm -hmm. right? If they don't want to follow you, you're not. And so the importance You know, as a servant leader, as compared to, I'll just term like an imperial leader, is people are there to serve you. Whereas a servant leader, you're there to serve them. You're the leader. Um, But you need them to understand that if they don't, if they're not there doing what they do, that none of this is going to work. Right. So it's, you know, in the military context, not about, you know, aircraft carriers or uh, fighter jets or tanks. It's about the people that are in them. Right. Mm-hmm. So the leader eat last concept, and it's when I was, a, I think it was a private first class or something. Um, we were lining up to eat chow. And this officer came up in, in the ops in the Marine world, officers eat last. That's the way they get the term, leaders eat last. And he even said, I'm late. You guys mind me cutting the line? And we're like, yeah, of course, sir. That? You know, and then another senior officer who did not hear him say, ask, literally right now I was just yanked him out of line and physically walked him to the back of the enlisted group. <laughs> that I was just... I left him there and, you know, it was, I guess, probably embarrassing to the, the young guy, but it definitely left him an imprint because it really... For the rest of the Marines, it, it exemplified what I'm trying to explain. Servant leadership is not about a privilege. It's about responsibility. If you want to be I think a leader that most people would respect, you should be more in the realm of a servant leader and less in the realm of an imperial leader. Um, You can see this, you know, play out in actuality in the military context. I mean, you can look at Ukraine right now, right? So Ukraine follows our models because they went with our training. In our models, we totally respect our senior NCOs, you know, our senior enlisted, you know, this year in airports. Absolutely, Um, yeah. Right? Uh, The Russians don't. They don't They don't even care about, like, mid-level to junior ops. Like yeah, they numbers. Yeah, they're just numbers. They're just cat- chatter, Right? So you can see and, you know, it's not over yet, but I think you could see that the, our model, the Ukrainian model as those type of leaders is the superior one to the imperial leader who either, you know, can't ever imagine himself getting down in the trenches, literally, uh, and just doesn't respect the people that he leads. And I think it's clear that the Russian military exemplifies the latter. So, mm-hmm. um, from my perspective, being a good leader is getting people to want to follow you. And if you can't get people to want to follow you, you're not a good leader, right? Just because you have some maybe you know hereditary you know thing because you took over a company or something, you really got to focus on being a good leader and start by being a good person, right? I know that seems like a cliche, but that's what i think is the most effective leadership is for them to see in you what you expect to see in them
0: yeah it's funny when i was a young officer i remember thinking a couple different times that the commanders that i worked for it there there almost was a correlation of how much they talked about leadership and how bad of a leader they were <laughs>
1: yeah right
0: <laughs> yeah you know what i mean it's like if you're that good and and, and you and you have a strong foundation Upon which you're coming from, you don't need to talk about it. You're you're going right. about your business and you're doing it in a certain way, and people are watching you. And like you said, they're following because they they think you're a good leader. And and one person's you know comes to mind, and I just remember thinking like, Good lord, this guy knows every quote about leadership. He's got stuff all over the place. He's sending us emails and stuff, but he's he's a terrible leader. He doesn't treat people mm-hmm. properly. He, you know, he wasn't a first in last out guy, kind of like you talked about with, with, with the chow line. Um, mm-hmm. and, and everyone felt the same way and it was blatantly obvious, but I think he was probably compensating <laughs> overcompensating right. for his lack of leadership. He probably knew he had, um, faults there. And so he became the guy who could recite, uh, all of this stuff about leadership, but, but could not practice it. And it was, right honestly painful as a young lieutenant and captain to watch, but it was a good example as well to say, Hey, don't be like that guy. That is right. That is right. Ev- everything wrong about, you know, how, how I should treat, treat people and both people I'm working for, uh, and being led by and those that are following me. So yeah, there's definitely needs to be some, some, uh, action involved, not just, not just speaking about it. Um, but yeah, I've got a couple of closing, closing questions. Um sure. if you'd like to transition a little bit. And this one goes back, you know, one of the reasons I started this podcast was kind of to in the in the wealth and financial worlds, everything gets hyper-focused around money and people lose sight of of purpose and and kind of what why even is this just about more? Uh, or is there is there some reason, you know, why why I might save and invest or whatever? So I'd like to ask. What does wealth in a broad sense mean to you?
1: Hmm. So, I'd start with the last um, philosophy conference I went to and spoke at was for uh, the YPO. You're probably familiar with that group, mm-hmm. right? So, ba- basically, really successful businessmen and women. Right. And they wanted to have all of us Stoics uh, or philosophers. There was philosophers from Oxford, there was historians from bbc but it was all it was all about stoicism they wanted us there so i think that's a good thing and yeah and and obviously they had done very well in life and um i think they would all be successful you know when it comes to wealth and i didn't pull them but i think it's actually part of the qualifications for the group Mm -hmm. but they were looking to your point for a bigger purpose all of them i could tell I mean, yeah. it, it, it's, they're young people who have done really well. So, and it, it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough. Uh, and I think that's one of the common comments that we got back. It was like, the wealth isn't enough. And, and there's nothing wrong with it. And Stoics don't have a problem with people with wealth. But, you know, if you think about the history of Stoicism, Zeno, who yeah. who was very wealthy and then lost everything, right? So Lost it all. It, lost it all. Right. So, and I guess we could probably always use that as as a as not a warning, but as something to remember. You can always lose it all. And if your entire personal wealth worth is in uh, material wealth, um, that's not a good thing. It's really not. And that's I think that's probably one of the essence of stoicism: is your wealth is who you are and what you do. It's not things you possess. And then, of course, one of the reasons why I think uh marcus aurelius is so um respected is because he had all the wealth in the world to your point like he was uh, emperor of the greatest empire ever and he could have done whatever he wanted he was essentially completely above the law every prurient pleasure one could want he could get at the snap of the finger anybody who irritated him he could dispense with immediately and he didn't do any of those things. You know, he was the guy who slept with the troops in the field. He's the guy who, um, you know, uh, was introspective and critical of his own thoughts and wrote it down. And then the book itself was never intended to be published. So, you know, that's what he really right. thought. Right. It wasn't a, right. it wasn't like, I'm going to write a book. And everybody's going to read how great I was. You know, I mean, that wasn't the point. In fact, uh, you know, he wanted it to be destroyed. and You know, we just didn't do it. Thank God. So I think. You know, if you take those two as an example, you could be wealthy and good. Yeah, you could also lose all that wealth and be good. And if you look at things that way, um, and look for a higher purpose, you could do a lot of good. Like Mm -hmm. you could be the person who accumulates a lot of wealth and hopefully, in the process, enhance people's lives. And then, when you're when you're at that point, look for things to do to help people. With your wealth, right? Right. I mean, you can do it. You can't take it with you. So, um, you know, if you want to look at it that way, again, I don't, and I think, you know, it's most folks I know they don't have a problem with people who do really well. In fact, it's good. But for what it? Right. What, you know, what are you going to do it? Are you just going to buy the, you know, the bunch of cars and several houses or whatever it is? And is that really doing any good for you? No. I mean, it's the thing. And we could keep going on other podcasts. If you look at like people that are happy with themselves and you might have already know this, but you get higher incomes, it actually goes down. Like the personal happiness goes down.
0: Um, Yeah. It starts, I think at $75,000 and this was probably 10 or 15 years ago. So up that a little for inflation, obviously. Um, But yeah, so, so maybe around a hundred thousand dollars happiness flattens out for a long time. So you're not getting any happier. And then I don't know what that level is, but Yes, it starts to go down and people are worried about all these other you know a whole different set of problems uh yeah. in their life. So a- absolutely it's it's totally true and and uh an interesting human phil- uh, you know uh, psychological
1: yeah, thought there. Yeah. Right. And so I uh, you know I'm I'm not advocating for like stop making money when you get to a certain level. but I guess if you just change your perspective on what really matters and what your personal you know wealth is is not your bank account. Right. And if you have the luxury of doing really well, what are you going to do with it? I guess that's the question. Yeah. What, what is your purpose? Now you can have you can have a, a more broader purpose with more resources. So uh, that's that's what I would say. Your wealth should be tied to who you are as a person and how you affect other people positively, of course. And that's and if you can do that, you know, with with accumulation of resources. Great. Uh, but it's not required. Right. It's not
0: right. Yeah, I, I, that's one thing I love about stoicism. It feels so balanced to me as a philosophy. It's not too extreme on, on any side. And I I love the idea of money truly is not in, in, indifferent. If you have a lot of money, you could do something really terrible with it and exploit people and take advantage of people and dominate people and have very toxic, unhealthy relationships and power struggles with people. Or if you have a lot of money, you can use it to... to help push forward causes that you think, that you think deserve some assistance. You can help people in need. You can d- do all these other things. So it money is not good or bad. I mean, it's, it's not, it's uh it's like you said, it's, it's what do you do with it? And I think that's a really good way of, of kind of approaching, approaching wealth. And like you said, as well, kind of alluded to not getting your identity wrapped into your monetary success. And I think that's why you see a lot of really, wealthy people that are totally miserable because every time the balance sheet goes down a little bit, so does their, their feelings about themselves and, and about how happy they are. That's, um, as someone who works in finance and, and sees the volatility and the fluctuations, th- that is not a healthy, uh, mentality. If you, if you're, uh, following that closely and, and letting that impact how you feel day to day, month to month, year to year. So makes a lot of sense. And then, Mick, the last question is if you could go back, um, in your case, maybe to when you were a young enlisted Marine, um, what's a piece of advice? What's something you would you would tell yourself um, having gone through the journey you have now?
1: Hmm. That's a good question. Um, I would say this. Take what you do seriously, but don't necessarily take yourself too seriously. And I, I mean, I didn't have it pre thought that out. <laughs> so um, I so, love that. Yeah. I mean, you should have a purpose in life. I think I did. It doesn't have to be, you know, you know, military or CIA or something like that. But you should have a purpose in life. And that purpose you should take seriously because you can really do a lot from all different angles, whether, whether, no matter where you start. Yeah. But don't take yourself so damn serious, right? So, (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know, don't get too wrapped up in your own. And I'm not saying I did. I mean, I had a lot of, uh, I mean, you go to boot camp in the Marine Corps and you you want to find out how unimportant you are as an individual. uh, They'll (laughs) tell you. They'll tell you. So I had plenty of people that kind of shocked that out of me. So I'm not saying I was, but. You know, to the extent that people are, and, and to the extent, to the extent that I was, it's you miss. I, I would say, to the extent that I did that, I was missing the point. The point was what I was doing, and 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 the mission I had. Whatever that mission is in life, you know, it could be raising your kids, which is an awesome mission. It could be, you know, doing philanthropy and the Peace Corps, or or what have you. Or it could just be like you know, my wife's volunteers at the senior center, right? So they hurt like. She would not miss that for anything. It could be mm-hmm. a blizzard out there and she's going to it. that's you know I think she would say that's like one of the things she most feels like she's helping right that's her mission. I mean she has a job and all stuff but her you know her volunteer mission can also be your mission that also includes like don't don't think your whole being has to be your job, right um, Men I think especially do this yes um, where you know, just meet a man and see how fast. It takes them. What do you do for a living? I don't know. Um, that's, or, or even worse, yeah. talking <laughs> yeah. about
0: how much they work. That's even, yeah. that one kills yes. me. It's like a competition yeah. of who works the longest. I'm like, oh, right. I'm out.
1: <laughs> yep, yep. Yeah, like, that, like that's a, something to brag about. It's not. So that's part of saying, that's part of what I mean by don't take yourself too serious. Mm-hmm. Right? Like you can have a mission. It could be your job or it could be your hobby. And that's, I think you should take serious because then you'll have more of an impact with whatever you decide to do, but never take yourself so serious that, um, you know, it just becomes all about you or what have you. That's what I would, I would tell any young person, including myself. And I think I got that reinforced in my career, but, um, that's one of that's, that's what I would say.
0: Great. And lastly, um, would you like to tell a little bit about Lobo Institute and what you do there, and also, oh, sure. you know, where, where can people find
1: you learn more about
0: your mission and, and what you're working on?
1: Yeah, so the Lobo Institute was started by myself and my business partner, Eric Ulrich, who was a uh, Navy SEAL for 24 years, uh, commander. Um, and we had we worked in many areas, Afghanistan, Somalia together. Uh, but when we got out, we wanted to create an organization that really focused on conflicts, trying to end the ones that are, you know, currently going on, how to prevent ones from starting. And quite frankly, if ones do start, how to end them really quickly, which, you know, from my perspective, means winning. Uh, and the last part is really trying to help those that are most affected negatively by conflict. So if you look, if you go lowwinds.org, you'll see it's not just, you know, special operations folks like uh, Eric and myself. It's you know, people who used to work for the U.N., People used to work for USAID. People work for charities and NGOs that work in conflict areas, child psychologists, multiple uh, nationalities, because that's what is needed to do something about all the things I just mentioned when it comes to conflict. So we do, we are analysts for ABC News. We work at think tanks, universities, colleges. We do projects on uh, all sorts of human rights issues and, and specifically on the issue of stopping the use of children in armed uh, conflicts. So we have an NGO called In Child Soldiering that's uh, 100% find the groups that are doing it. Uh, You know, we we did a documentary based on a child soldier that's now being made into a book uh, by Mark Sullivan, a great author here in Montana. And part of the funding is going to In Child Soldiering. You know, pretty substantial part. So, this is an issue that is near to here, dear, dear to us. We did the documentary, but we've also seen it in conflict areas where adults are starting these wars, but they ain't fighting. Them, right? Some thirteen-year-old mm. with an AK is, and that should be unacceptable to any adult anywhere. And these kids are the ones that nobody, nobody values. To be frank, they're in countries that people don't value. You know, unfortunately, and they're the in that part of their society where they don't. And, and if if people don't demand an into it, uh, it'll keep going. Uh, it's expanded in 2019. I know it's a little dated, but that's the study we did. Uh, it doubled in the Middle East. I mean, literally doubled. So it's a it's a huge issue for us that we want to address. I mean, that's one of my missions in life, right? So that's, you know, like I was talking about in the last question, uh, and it's a mission of us. And we hope to that it gets addressed and we can do everything we can to stop that practice.
0: Well, excellent. And um, if someone wants to learn more about you, or I know, I know you're also a uh, avid writer, where can people mm-hmm. learn more about your thoughts, get your thoughts and views on on things?
1: Uh, so, in Lobo Institute, we keep a you know our publication list. So If you just hit Mick Mulroy Publications, um, it's basically in three categories: national security, which is most of what I do, um, and then the issue of child soldiers, and then philosophy. Right, so uh, there is a page where you could go to, and, and if you're interested in reading uh, what I write, uh, that'd be awesome. Um, so it won't be just my mom, um, maybe someone else. Uh, but that's uh, that's that's super cool. I don't even know if my rom- mom reads my to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> mine doesn't read mine. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, but that's one way to do it. If you're just interested in the Logo Institute, we have groups that are like our experts. We have groups that are interns. We have groups that are fellows. It's kind of a combination of action and think tank. And it's a it's an association more than a company, right? It's a, we do projects together, but people also write. Uh, that are interested in those areas, and we publish, and they do podcasts and stuff like that. And it's really a, a, it's an association like a club of like minded people.
0: Fantastic. Well, Mick, it was a pleasure talking to you. Uh, I learned a ton, and uh, I think you're doing some interesting interesting stuff and combining um, some various domains uh, that I find interesting, and I think have some some noteworthy overlaps that are that are important, and people can can use as a, as a guide of how to implement some of these things in their own lives, whatever that may look like. So it's been a pleasure and I appreciate you chatting
1: with me today. Absolutely. James, great, great conversation.
0: Thanks for listening to my discussion with Mick Mulroy. If you enjoyed this episode, I encourage you to follow philosophy. So you're notified when new episodes drop, you can help us out by rating the show on your favorite podcast platform and sharing it with anyone you think might find it interesting or useful.